The passage on which today's teaching is based, uh, printed also in your bulletins, is Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to be reading from verses 15 to 35 today. Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 35, and we'll be looking into the life again of Jacob and continuing in that. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. And this is God's word. Confusing, right? A little bit. Um, We're entering into a series, um, and the series is on the gospel according to Jacob, the the life of Jacob. Jacob, who's um, one of the, filled with doubts, filled with uh, anxieties, filled with fears, um, incredibly flawed, and because of that, very relatable. In fact, I, I find Jacob to be one of the most Uh, relatable people in the book of Genesis, if not the entire Bible. And so just to give you a little bit of a background on what's happened so far, God comes to Abraham, the grandfather of of Jacob, and he says, look at all the decay. The world is falling into decay and violence and evil. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to promise you a child. And through the generations to come, one child in your family One child in every generation will become the leader of that clan or that family. And he will come, he will restore what's broken in that family. He will restore what's broken in the world. Until we come to the ultimate child, one day one child will come from your seed, among your descendants, 
generation after generation, who will do the ultimate undoing of evil. He will come and restore everything that's broken with the world. And Isaac was this child that was born, the child of promise from Abraham, his beloved son. And from that point on, Isaac, again, would pass on the seed to another child. Except there's a rub. Isaac bears two sons and they're twins. Two sons and they're twins. And, and these twins, Jacob and Esau, they're jostling about in the mother's womb. And, and uh, Rach, uh, Rebecca is concerned about that. And so she, she inquires of the Lord, it says. She goes to seek a, a, a prophecy. And the prophecy comes back. The younger will serve the older. It's a, it's a counterintuitive prophecy. Jacob, in other words, will be the one that God would bless. God would use him and his descendants to redeem everything that's broken in the world. And, but as they grew up, what happens? Isaac, Jacob's father, favors the other son, Esau. And that creates a, a world of problems in the family. And Jacob grows up desperate for his father's love, uh, bitter for his father's love, fighting, vying for his father's love. And what does he do one day? He dresses up as, as uh, Esau, the favored son, the masculine son, the, uh, the, charism- the, the one with charisma, the dynamic, athletic son. He dresses up as him and he tricks his father, who's blind because of old age. He tricks his father to give him that blessing. And since then, he's on the run because Esau is furious with anger. And he's on the run, and he's penniless, and he's friendless. Um, He doesn't have family anymore around him, and he's defenseless. And he's wondering throughout this time, did God mess up in terms of giving me the blessing? Did God screw up, or, or did I screw up too much to be too far from receiving this blessing? And God appears to him in a dream, and he assures him, and he says, I'm going to give you this land I will be with you always. I'm going to watch over you. And now at this point, we come to this passage, Jacob is working for his uncle Laban. And, he, and Laban, businessman, realizes that Jacob is a good worker. Jacob's a good worker, and he's got management capabilities, so he's wondering, you know, how can I use Jacob to expand my business? And so he comes to Jacob, and he says, what can, what can I do to keep you, Jacob, Clearly, you're gifted. I want you to rise up this corporate ladder. What can I do to keep you? And Jacob says, Rachel, I want your younger daughter, Rachel. I want Rachel. Give Rachel to me. Now, this is a great big problem because he's, you know, Jacob's laying out his cards before a very, very shrewd businessman. And uh, Laban realizes Jacob will do anything for Rachel. What can I do to use this to my advantage? I found his weakness. Now I can exploit him. Laban had two daughters. We know that, right? Laban had two daughters. Verse 17, Leah, who had weak eyes, and Rachel. The text says that Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, the narrative makes a a point to highlight Leah's eyes. He doesn't say Leah, this wasn't about eyesight. He doesn't say Leah, you know, had weak eyes, but Rachel could see very, very well. That's not what he says here. He says, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. Rachel was lovely in form. In other words, there was something wrong with Leah's eyes that rendered her, it, it was like a disfigurement. Most likely she was cross-eyed or there was some sort of disfigurement that rendered her ugly. 
She was unattractive, completely unattractive, unattractive to her father, unattractive. The world didn't, it's kind of passed over her, but Rachel was lovely in form. Rachel was beautiful. And the narrative makes a point to highlight that, to show us that here are these two people, the sisters, living together. Can you imagine Leah living together? The younger sister, always lauded with praise, beautiful, lovely, but Leah always looked over passed over, by, even by her own father. And, and Laban figures out a way to marry off both of his daughters. Knowing that it's customary to marry off the elder one first, what does he do? You know, Leah being the unattractive one, we know that difficult to marry off Rachel because Leah is not married, you know. So what does he do? He realizes that in Jacob, not only can he amass a, a great deal of wealth because Jacob is a businessman and he's got management capabilities and he's good at his work, but now he can get both daughters married off. And uh, Jacob is willing to work for Rachel's hand in marriage. Seven years, he promises. Why is he willing? It's, it's striking. You know, I think it's striking here. Why is Jacob willing to work? For, for, you know, up until this point, he's kind of connived his way, schemed his way to getting everything, but he's willing to work for Rachel's hand in marriage. Why? And it's because for the first time in his life, Jacob is saying, I have earned something honestly. This is something I'm not going to mess with. Love. I found the love of my life. I'm going to work for her honestly. I'm going to earn her. She will be mine. I got something in my life that actually makes me feel good about myself. In other words, Rachel is more than a relationship, more than just a relationship for Jacob. Rachel is more than just about having children, more than just about having a, a change of marital status. Rachel is beautiful. Rachel is lovely, and he's going to earn her. He's going to win her. This love story is more than just a love story. It's more than just about love. Rachel is Jacob's redemption story. If I can just have Rachel, then everything that went wrong makes sense. It's worth it. If I could just have Rachel. In verse 20, it says that Jacob was so in love with Rachel that the seven years, ah, seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. So poetic. But we know it's not poetry. Verse 21, give me my wife. And if you actually look at the language here, it's a very demanding, almost a crazed animal, you know, clawing for what he wants. Jacob is overcome, overwhelmed, desperate, hungry. He says, I want to lie with her. Give her to me. I've earned it. Seven years is up. Time's up. But Laban deceives Jacob. Jacob made a living out of deception. What happens here? The wedding night. Everyone's drinking. Jacob's guard is down. And Jacob now expects to be with his wife, Rachel. But instead, what happens? Leah takes Rachel's place. He's not too far from this story. Earlier, Jacob dressed up as Esau, and we see the sun setting on his life, it says. He's in the middle of nowhere. And now at this point says, now I found someone who's going to make everything right for me. And all of a sudden there's a reversal. The sun is set again. And Leah goes in in Rachel's place. Before it was Isaac's senses that were dulled. Now it's Jacob's senses that are dulled. 
And he ends up sleeping with Leah. And verse 25, literally, when morning come, behold, whenever we see that, behold, surprise, there was Leah. There was Leah. Jacob confronts Laban. And he says, you know, what have you done to me? And Laban says, you know, pretty much, you know, you have to read the fine print. When you asked for Rachel, I never said yes. That's not what I said. I said it's better for you to have her than someone else. That's, you know, you got to read the fine print. And, and so Jacob says, what do I do now? I don't want her. I don't want Leah. Laban says, well, another seven-year deal, another seven-year contract. And poor Leah, she's caught between two deceivers. She's no longer marketable. She knew that. And, and this exchange, you know, what it did to this poor woman, what it did to Leah, now, you know, she has to live with what? Every day that Jacob goes to work from this point on, what happens? He's going to work for Rachel. He's going to earn Rachel's love. He's living for Rachel. And that means that every day that Jacob goes to work, every day that Leah is married, Jacob is breaking her heart. But the story continues, right? Leah can have children. Rachel can't have children at this point. Later on, she can. But right now, Rachel's barren. Leah, the one thing that she can bring to the table, she can have children. And so she says, this is the way that I'm going to win Jacob's life. And every child that's born to her represents this deep longing. You see this in the words, in the language. Verse 32, she names her child Reuben. Reuben is what? Now I'm loved. Now I'm seen, actually. I'm seen by God. Now I'm loved. Verse 33, she names the child Simeon. Now I'm heard. Verse 34, she names the child Levi. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now I'll be seen. Now I'll be heard. Now I'm going to be attached. Until the fourth child she names him Judah. Now I will praise the Lord. Now I will praise the Lord. We're going to go through this very quickly. There are two points, really, uh, two points I'm going to kind of elaborate on. First, uh, radical lessons about sin, what sin is. And lastly, remarkable lessons about grace, what grace is. Lessons about sin. Lessons about grace. First, our lessons about sin. Three very quick lessons. First, you don't commit sin. Sin commits you. You don't, sin is more than just an act. Sin is not simply just a bad thing that you do or a result of bad judgment. Uh, rather, it's a devastating, captivating power. It's going to control you. It's going to shape you. It's going to move you. It resides in the core of your heart. Everything that you treasure, everything that you want, it's going to shape it. You lie, you end up living a life of lies. You end up getting deceived. You end up experiencing the guilt of lies. That guilt, the, the lies that you commit, the lies that are committed against you, you get lied to, it's going to, it corrodes you. Jacob, at this point, now is willing to work another seven years. He's been cheated. You don't see much argument there. What's happened? The lies, the powerlessness of his desires, all the things that he wants. He wants Rachel so bad. He's powerless to it. He's powerless to being cheated against. He's powerless to his desires. And there's so many examples here. Isaac. Isaac poisoned Jacob emotionally by doting on Esau. And what do you see? Now you're seeing a continuation of that. It's more than just an act. Sin is more than just an act. You don't commit sin. Sin commits you. What happens here? Jacob, now doting on Rachel, poisoning Leah emotionally. Poisoning Leah. This is an incredibly disturbing passage. You see that, right? Incredibly disturbing. And it's got tremendous ramifications. Why? Because later on you'll see Leah's children 
continue to struggle with Rachel's children. The generational conflicts continue. The lies continue. Rachel's children, Joseph, Benjamin, Leah's children, always at war. Constant deception. Sin never just goes away. If you think, you know, you can just cover it up because it'll just go away. Sin never goes away. You don't commit sin. Sin will always be there, will always reside. It will always work to control, to captivate you. The ripple effects will trap you. It's going to trap other people around you, people that you love, people that, will care, that you care for. It's going to trap them, consume you, consume them, consume others. Sin's got amazing, captivating nuances. You don't just commit sin. Sin commits you. Second, sin commits you to hard labor. Seven years of hard labor, 14 years of hard labor. It's going to make you work, but it's always going to end up in disappointment, cosmic disappointment. Jacob, he's exhausted. He's got no family. He's running. He's suffering the guilt of his actions, doubting the presence of God in his life. And at the same time, he's waiting and he's dreaming. And you know, you know those vignettes where you know, the devil pops up on one side of your shoulder and speaks into you and then there's the angel that pops up and the other side of his shoulder and tells you, don't do it, don't listen to it. And then the devil comes over and strangles the angel and then pops away, disappears in a puff of smoke. That's not what's going on here. Sin takes something. You know how sin works? It opens your eyes to the allure, what it promises you. You have to, you own it. There's no, the voices are your voices. Sin uh, promises these, these things and tells you that, you know, if you just have these things, and this has happened ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since the beginning uh, of man, sin tells you, you need to be accepted. You need to do these things. You know why? Because that's how you're going to get acceptance. That's how you're going to get love. You need to do this. You need to work. You need to work because that's how you're going to get your worth. That's the reason why you need to do these things. You will be satisfied. That's the end point because if you, at the end, you're going to find worth. You're going to find satisfaction. Jacob, he says, finally now, I've met Rachel and all these things have gone wrong in my life. It's starting to shape up. Things are starting to finally look on the bright side. And now I've arrived. And then he wakes up. Behold, there's Leah. He wakes up and there's Leah. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators uh, in the book of Genesis. If you ever get a hold of a commentary by Derek Kidner about the book of Genesis, awesome, awesome. And he says that this concept, this cycle of looking for something and pursuing something and then you wake up and there's disappointment has been there. It's a miniature vignette all the way throughout the course of time and it begins in the Garden of Eden. Since the first sin, This has become characteristic of our lives. In the morning, no matter what your hopes are of marriage, of your promotion, of your popularity, of your wealth, in your children, in the morning, there will always be Leah. There will always be Leah. Marriage is more than about love. Marriage is more than about, it it becomes, for many of us, our measure of worth. And that's why we get depressed when we're not married. And that's why we become depressed when we are married because, you know, it didn't live up to our expectations, we say. Some of us are working right now, earning, trying to find love. And it's not just for people who are single, it's for people who are married too. 
We're earning. We're constantly working. And we're fighting. And we're paying a price. And we're paying a price emotionally and physically. And there's guilt and shame involved because we're paying a tremendous price, either emotionally or with our bodies. And, and, and what happens? We're punished. We feel punished. There's tremendous bitterness and anger. It's corroding our souls, corroding ourselves. And we think that our careers and our pedigrees, our sex lives, if we would just work hard because these things, there's tremendous allure. And these things are promising us uh, Rachel in the morning. But when we wake up, you think you're getting Rachel. You think you're getting something beautiful. There'll always be Leah. Poor Leah. Poor Leah. Her hopes of finding significance. Finally, I get to escape my dad. Finally, I can find worth. I've met somebody now who's going to help to cure the hurting in my heart that's happened since the day I was born. And in verse 30, she's devastated by the truth that what? Her husband loves Rachel more than her. She's rejected by her father, rejected by her husband, and she's going to live with this every day of her life, cosmic disappointment. There are several ways that people deal with this. You know, I'm just going to run through this very quickly. You know, a lot of times, you know, here's Jacob, verse uh, 25. He confronts Laban. You did this to me. We blame other people. And as a result, we say, it must be the relationship. So we change relationships. It must be the job. So we change our jobs. It must be this. So we change whatever it is that's dissatisfying us at the moment. Or we blame ourselves. We come across this majestic sense of pity. We say, this always happens to me. Why do I always get myself in these situations? And it's, you know, this is me. This is my lot in life. Woe is me. You know, I always, you know, I, I realize this is the way that it's meant to be. I'm just going to always find cycles of, of torture in relationships in my life. We blame God. We blame the world. You know, we become cynical and pessimistic. Our souls corrode. We start to wake up. Jacob he must have seen the connection. He must have seen the tie. His world of deception. And he got pretty successful. What is the purpose of all these things? You can start to wake up and gauge what is going on here. What is God doing in my disappointment? The third lesson about sin is that uh, it exposes And that's one of these things that these kind of relationships do in our lives. It exposes our heart's deepest desires, our idols, the nuances of our idolatry. What Leah wanted wasn't a bad thing. What Jacob wanted wasn't a bad thing. Love, children, a relationship. That's what they desired, a good marriage, sons, not a bad thing. For Jacob... His identity was placed in these good things. His identity was placed in his relationship. He couldn't live without Rachel. He was willing to work forever for Rachel. His self-worth was built on this relationship, and therein lies the problem. This emotional dependence on Rachel. You know, what happens, you know, when we, when we uh, depend emotionally uh, Build up, our, build up our spouses in a way that we're emotionally dependent on them. We're building our lives on our spouses. What happens? Is, what, what happens? We become controlling. We become judgmental. We, we start to suffocate our spouses. 
and in our judgmentalness and, and, uh, and we're suffocating them and we're, we're constantly uh, trying to control them, what are you doing? You're destroying that relationship. Children, they're easy to control because they're weak and they're young. But what happens is we want them to be perfect. Why? Because if they can just be perfect, well, number one, if they're not perfect, it's going to be a reflection of me that I'm not perfect. We can't have that. So they have to be perfect, and we want to send them to the best schools. They have to get the best grades. They have to be the perfect athletes, and we program and time everything right for our children. And what happens? You suffocate them. You're going to kill their spirit, and they're going to resent you, and they're going to hate you. It's because you're building your lives around your children. Idols. You have cosmic disappointment, your idols get exposed, and they make these disappointments worse. Thank God. God is not like Laban. God is, God is a faith. You know, he looks at us in our flaws and he doesn't sit there and say, you know, oh, this person is unattractive, but I'm going to love them. This person's so unattractive. But, you know, so many flaws, but I'm just, I'm just going to love them because that's what they need. That is not our father. He is so faithful. And he is, he is so much more faithful than a husband could ever be. He is so much more faithful than a father could ever be. And so there's got to be good news. The bad news is this radical view of sin, these three points. That, but what's the good news? We see remarkable lessons about grace. First, God works in weak people. God works in weak people, very weak people. This narrative you know, is one of the reasons why a lot of people run from the church. A lot of people run from the Bible because of passages like this. Because it looks like, you know, here's Jacob, a so-called patriarch, in Genesis, and yet he's a bigamist and he's an emotional abuser of women. How could the Bible condone any of these things? Look, look at this text. Who's happy in this text? Does Jacob look happy to you? Does Leah look happy to you? Does Rachel, you know, even Rachel, the generations are at war, the children will be at war. Does she look happy to you? The Bible certainly doesn't condone any of these things. There's no way that this passage is condoning bigamy or emotional abuse of anybody. You know, we don't see that. In fact, if anything, you're seeing exactly the downside of what sin actually does to corrode our souls. That's what you're seeing here. And, 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 you know, there's no way that the passage is condoning this. But if you're reading this and you're still angry, it's because of this. You still think that the Bible is about role models. You still think that Jacob is supposed to be a role model for us. We've been saying that the Bible is not a collection of stories uh, teaching us how to live uh, a moral life. The Bible is not written like Aesop's fables where you read it and you walk away with the moral of the story. Um, Rather, the Bible is one story pointing us to the greatest love story of them all, the love story from which all other love stories come from. And we show them, we demonstrate them in our, in our terrible movies today, in our postmodern world. We see and we reflect uh, uh, just a slight portion of what this true love story is about. But the Bible is, is one story about the faithfulness of our husband, God our Father, sending our true bridegroom, Jesus, his son. And we have to remember that it's, you know, the Bible is actually about people who resist grace, who don't deserve grace, who don't seek grace. It wasn't like Jacob here was ever seeking God at this point. And don't even appreciate God's grace when they experience it. And yet that has to be the case. That's good news for us. Why? Here's Jacob, a cheater, a thief, a fraud, a polygamist, an emotional abuser of women. The scripture is filled with stories of this kind of brokenness. And yet God doesn't abandon Jacob. God doesn't abandon Jacob. 
What's he doing here? Jacob wakes up. In the morning, there's Leah. Cosmic disappointment. And what's God doing here? Bit by bit. He doesn't, Jacob's running away. But he doesn't let Jacob run. He's letting him remember. Bit by bit, he's humbling Jacob. He's working in Jacob. Through these major disappointments, he's making the story come together. He's working in him. He's humbling him. God works in weak people. God works, second point, God works through weak people. God uses the weak people in our lives to mature our view of our sin. You know, we start to see the depths, the nuances of our sin, and yet we start to see the heights, the extent of God's faithfulness in our lives. God uses Laban and his deceitfulness to do what? To humble Jacob. For once, Jacob has met his match. Jacob has met, he realizes, I've been had. You know, why didn't Jacob come up to Laban and do more than just say, what did you do to me? He kind of just leaves it at that. He doesn't fight Laban a whole lot. Why? God, through Laban, is now waking up Jacob's conscience. Every one of us right now has a Laban in our lives. Someone that we've suffered hurt or deception. It makes us, and like I said, there are ways that we can respond to that. You can totally withdraw or retaliate or fight back. But when you're waking up, God is waking waking you up to your conscience. Jacob is waking up to deception. Because he's seeing the mirror image. He's seeing the reversal. What he has done to Isaac has now been done to him. What Isaac has done to him, you know, with Esau, he is now doing, you know, with Rachel to Leah. God is waking him up to his conscience, to the deception. God works through weak people. Lastly, and this is the most important, God is attracted to the layers of the world. He is attracted to the weakest people. He is attracted to the broken person. If you're broken, if you're weak, and if you know it, if you're flawed, and we are incredibly flawed, if you look at yourself, you know, in that cosmic mirror and you see your flaws and it riddles you with guilt, God is attracted to the layers of the world. If you're constantly fighting to build your ego, There's only disappointment in the end. But God is faithful. And we see this in Leah's sons. The first son, now I will be seen. The second son, now I will be heard. Now I will be heard. Cosmic disappointment. The third son, now my husband will be attached to me. The idolatry. Cosmic disappointment. But something happened between the third and first son, fourth son. Something had to have happened. Because the fourth son is named something and is a reflection of not idolatry, but praise. This time around, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And the word Lord there, you know, whenever you see the word Lord capitalized like that in your Bibles, is a particular word used to describe God. Usually, typically in the Bible, you see words Elohim or Adonai, meaning, and that's the typical word, a very generic word for God, what people refer to God. But here she uses the word Yahweh. It's a particular word of a covenantal love, a love that that only God has for his people. And God said, when you see me to my people who I love, 
you know, that Kesed love, a love that only I can have, a faithful love that reaches out abundantly in a way that, that my people cannot love me, but I will love them, my chosen people. It's a very special love. He says, I will be Yahweh to you. And here Leah refers to God as Yahweh. Verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. What happened? Leah must have heard the promise. Leah must have heard the promise about the seed. Somewhere in her lifetime, she must have heard it. Somewhere she personalized it. Somewhere she recognized herself in the story. Each time she bears a son, now I'll be seen, now I'll be heard, now I'll be attached. And each time there's disappointment until the fourth son, this time I will praise the Lord, Yahweh. This time, something remarkable has happened. What's happened? Leah, for the first three sons, looking to her husband to fulfill her life. And each time is met with disappointment, but when she stopped looking to her husband's, her husband, sorry, were children for acceptance and love. And she finally turns to the Lord. She bears Judah. And she gets it. This time I will praise the Lord. She looks at Judah, and Judah was Leah's evidence. Something happened between that third and fourth son. Judah became Leah's evidence that she is not rejected. Her father may have rejected her. Her husband may have rejected her. But through Judah, Leah realizes that she will become the mother of the seed. The seed will pass through her. Judah is the seed. Rachel's later going to have children. Rachel will have children. So it's not the sheer fact of being able to have children. But what was, what was particular about Judah that made Re- uh, Leah rejoice? In Judah... Leah saw the seed, which meant that she's the seed. Judah would become a line of kings. Through Judah is born King David, the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. And in that same line, we see one who is greater than David, one who is the son of all sons, the one whom God promises to restore everything that's broken with the world, undo sin altogether, because through Judah is born Jesus. Centuries later, Jesus Christ is born. He would be born in the land of Judah. He carries a seed of promise. And Leah saw this. Leah saw this. And she realized that she may have been unattractive to Laban, unattractive to, uh, to Jacob, to her own husband, but utterly loved, utterly attractive to God. God had her eyes on, on, on Leah. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he came to her. That's what it says. She realized that the sons were, you know, she was using the birth of the sons to fulfill her desires and she was met with cosmic disappointment. But when she saw that the Lord had come to her, now she gets it. And she names Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. Through Leah, the Messiah, the Savior would be born. She would become a mother of Jesus. And that makes complete sense. She gets it. Why? Because that's it. God would choose Jacob, the younger, over the older. God would choose the less attractive over the attractive. Certainly, now she gets it. God is attracted to our unattractiveness. You know, if you're trying to build your life, if you're trying to build your life on your ego, what you're saying is, I am a lot more attractive than you think I am. God is not attracted to that. That is not the cosmic blessing. God is attracted to our weakness. 
God is attracted to our failures. In our flaws, he's working. Through flawed people, he's working. God is attracted to our weakness. Jesus, God's only son, his most beautifully prized son, Mark chapter one, the heavens open up, the spirit of God descends like a dove, and God says, ah, my son. This is my son whom I love, whom I treasure. This is the son that I love. You know, and it's the love of the father doting on his son. And he comes to earth. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, the prophecy of this son who's come to earth. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And then Jesus died. The only way that the weak can feel eternally beautiful is to behold the most beautiful one who became weak. The only way the, the unattractive person who's been passed over by all other people can, can be truly view themselves as beautiful in God's eyes is to behold the most beautiful son of God who's come to earth to become unattractive for our sakes. On the cross, Jesus, the greater Rachel, the greatest Rachel, became Leah so that the Leahs of the world could become Rachel's in God's eyes. Leah, ugly to the world, but Rachel, in God's sight, we, the Leahs of the world, can become Rachel's in God's sight. This is the key. This is the key to becoming free of our desires for love and and becoming emotionally dependent on people and others you know, because that's going to corrupt our souls. It's going to corrupt those people that we love. It's going to suffocate them, make them resentful of us. We said that. We no longer have to look for ways to look more beautiful on the outside. We can get rid of our adornments. We can get rid of our ornaments. We can, we can stop dressing up. There are ways that you can be like Leah. You know how you be like Leah in our world today? You dress up like Esau. That's what Jacob did. They're mirror images. Leah, wanting to be like Rachel, wanting to be beautiful. That's one way to be like Leah. You know another way to be like Leah? We hang around with Rachel's in our lives. We just want to hang around with Rachel's because we feel so inadequate. So what do we do? If I can just hang around, be loved by Rachel's in my life, then I feel worthy. Then I feel beautiful. But the only way that, this is the key to being free of these things because when we do this, when we look to the Lord and see that God sent the ultimate Rachel to become Leah for us, We can hide ourselves in the beauty of Jesus. We can hide ourselves in his amazing work for us on the cross. The beauty of Christ, the greater Rachel, that clothes us. That's what it means to come to the gospel. On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm not seen. I'm not heard. I was once attached to Trinity On the cross, the Trinity was torn apart. I'm no longer attached. I'm not seen. I'm not heard. I'm not attached. Why? So that we can be seen. Jesus was ignored. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was rejected. Why? So that we could be seen. We can be heard. We could be attached. Jesus experienced the ultimate cosmic disappointment so that we could be seen we could be filled. And when you see that he did this for you, that's your worth. That's your sense of worth. That, when you see that God has done that for you, you know that God looks at you like Rachel. 
That's your worth. That's the love that you've been pursuing all your life. We're constantly working to build a home, right? We're constantly working to build a resting place. God becomes the resting place in Jesus. Jesus, the greater Rachel, becoming Leah for us so that we, the Leahs, can become Rachels in God's side. Attach yourself to that truth. Behold that truth. Plant that truth deeper in our lives. Every one of us, every one of us, there are days when you just, when you feel like Rachel. You can feel like Leah. You know, very few of us wake up and say, ah, I am Rachel. None of us feel it. We wake up in the world, we feel, and it's not just on Monday, we feel like Leah. We feel like Leah every day. But we can attach ourselves to this truth. You know, we're all spiritually disfigured. God, when he looks at you, in Jesus, he's captivated by you. He's radiant. He looks at you and his eyes are radiant for you. He's smitten by you. He's whipped, just taken by you in Jesus. You know, the heavens are opened up. God says, this is my son. He's doting on Jesus. Why was he rejected then? So that he can pour out his love to his people. That's his faithfulness. That's grace. It's remarkable. Radical lessons about our sin. Remarkable lessons about God's grace. It's so abundant. So abundant. It undoes our sin. Let's plant these truths deeper into our hearts. Let's do that. Let's pray.